Welcome to this podcast for New Retina Radio. In today's program, Dr. Peter Kaiser from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, leads a discussion exploring the current and potential future uses of artificial intelligence in ophthalmology and optometry. This episode will cover the definition of AI in the context of ophthalmology and consider the challenges as well as the potential benefits of this technology. Welcome to this new Retina Radio podcast entitled, How Will Artificial Intelligence Affect the Practice of Ophthalmology? My name is Peter Kaiser, and I am the Cheney Family Endowed Chair in Ophthalmology Research and Professor of Ophthalmology at the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. In this podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Pierce Keene from the Institute of Ophthalmology, University College London, and Moorfields Eye Hospital in London, UK, as well as Professor James Wolfson, who's from the Optometry and Vision Science Research Group at the Austin Research Center for Health Aging at the Austin University, Birmingham, UK. And today we'll be discussing the use of AI technology in clinical practice and how the management of patients may change as a result of its incorporation. We'll be talking today about the whole eye in general, including applications of AI to both the retina and anterior segment. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Hi, Peter. So first of all, for our listeners, how would you define artificial intelligence in the context of ophthalmology? I think the term artificial intelligence gets used very widely now for for anything where a, a computer is involved. But certainly my interpretation of it is that intelligence part. So it's uh, about the um, computer learning and applying um, new uh, findings from constantly looking at the data that it gets and to improve what it does. It's one of those definitions that is kind of, it's sort of tricky to pin down the very specifics of, but but I, I guess I would, uh, I guess it's like any sort of actions or behavior that if a human were to do it, you would think that that required some intelligence on the on the part of the human is, is the way I would think of it. And uh, what you've alluded to, James, is around the machine learning aspects and this idea of learning from from data. And, and maybe, uh, Peter, if I may, one, one other thing just to highlight is that uh, a lot of the recent excitement around AI, um, certainly in the last five years, five to 10 years, is about a, a subset of machine learning, which is called deep learning. And, and this is uh, essentially use of something called artificial neural networks to be able to do lots and lots of cool things. And we'll, we'll go through all these things, but I think it's important for the listeners to understand, you know, for instance, doing a, a Google search that's using artificial intelligence. Uh, and anytime you, you use anything that, as you said, making using computers to make our lives a little bit easier is, is using artificial intelligence. And when it comes to ophthalmology, we have anything from something simple like that but all the way up to the idea of using deep learning and some of these other black box ideas that could hopefully help us in the future. So let's start with you, James. You know, what are some of the examples currently being used both in optometry and ophthalmology uh, with artificial intelligence? So I think the main ones that are being used to, to data are to do with uh, images and, and images that can be taken in a fairly standardized way. So generally retinal images um, where those can be fed into uh, things like a neural network um, for it to start to understand from a range of different images 
um, and the diagnoses that are put on them, what particular features give that information. And probably some of the most exciting data is where actually you can give the computer some other risk factor type um, parameters of the patient, such as their um, sex and age and, and blood pressure. And actually the computer is able to draw out information from uh, images that we never thought were there, um, or we didn't have a, a good way of, of analyzing before. So it generally has been applied to things where the data is um, able to be presented in quite an ordered way. And that is more to do, I, I would guess, with, with retinal function than it is anterior eye. Well, Professor Keene, you know, the use of artificial intelligence in retina begs the question is, can we use artificial intelligence algorithms to basically evaluate for clinical trials? Do you think that's possible? Well, I think um, to answer that question uh, properly, Peter, I think I need, I need to backtrack a little bit. And just to, as you alluded to already in, in the discussion, um, the, these techniques in AI, in particular deep learning, are really, really powerful for things such as um, image classification. So in outside of healthcare, the fact that we can, um, you know, take a picture of something on our phone and, uh, you know, the, the, the phone operating system can probably tell us what's in the photo. It can say it's a cat or it's a dog. Or um, the fact that self-driving cars have now these very advanced image recognition systems that allow them to, to drive without a, a driver. And so, um, Really, it doesn't take a genius then to go from that concept to ophthalmology, as James has been saying, and to essentially present images to a neural network. And in the same way that you might uh, have an AI system that tells the difference between cats and dogs, you might have a, an AI system that tells the difference between diabetic retinopathy, referable diabetic retinopathy, and non-referable diabetic retinopathy. Now, what I'm getting around to in a very kind of roundabout, maybe slightly meandering way is that um, you can do that for OCT scans and you can do that at a pixel level for OCT scans. So in other words, uh, what the work that you um, uh, referenced with Retin AI and, and Novartis is doing is training a, a, a deep learning neural network to be able to look at any given pixel on an OCT scan and say what type of um, disease feature it is. So for example, it can look at an OCT scan and delineate all of the intraretinal fluid or delineate all of the subretinal fluid or any other anatomic parameter that it's of interest. And then we can use that in a clinical trial to give more objective and quantitative measures. And the key point, point the way that you do that with these neural networks is something called supervised learning which is that you have um, you know, some human experts spend often weeks or months or even years painstakingly, meticulously delineating these features on sample data and then presenting that to a neural network so it can learn how to replicate that. Well, and I think you bring up a very important point, Pierce, because, you know, a, a neural network is only as good as what you feed it. And I know your group with Adnan and, and Vas Sada have done a lot of work with macular degeneration. In general, how much training does a algorithm require where we as ophthalmologists can say, okay, we trust this algorithm. It's been trained properly. It's got the right education, so to speak. 
Well, that is a million dollar question. In my experience, when you talk to AI experts, computer scientists and engineers, you will never get a straight answer. And the answer uh, on the exact numbers, what the answer will always be is the more data, the better. And a key thing that is a little bit different for us as clinicians is that we're not talking about 100 patients. Maybe sometimes we're not talking about 1,000 patients. We're talking about tens or even hundreds of thousands of patients worth of data. And that's the, that if you can, the secret of deep learning is that if you have uh, millions of scans, it will do very, very, it will perform very, very well if it's shown data that's similar to what it's been trained on. And that's a really, really key point. So even if it's been trained on 10 million scans, if you show it a scan from a population that's completely different from what it's been trained on, it will probably flunk that test. Yeah, and this is no different really to, to clinical trials. You know, we, we talk about randomized controlled trials being the sort of gold standard, but of course they've got a particular population they were done on. They had um, certain inclusion and exclusion criteria that made the, the group very uh, clean and, and probably very different to your general population. Um, and therefore, really, the results are applicable um, really to that group. And then we try to generalize more. And, and perhaps we're more critical when it comes to AI, that we feel that, you know, it, it should be able to do every type of race and class, et cetera, um, for, for it to be valid. But, but we trust clinical trials where exactly the same sort of criteria um, are true. But, um, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with with. Uh, Dr. Keane, that, that the algorithms are only going to be as good as the population that they were tested on. And as he said, we probably have much larger populations to learn from because there is so much physiological variability. You guys have brought up some important concerns about using artificial intelligence. And one of the ones that many people don't realize is what Pierce just brought up. So if, let's just say you train an algorithm using, say, one company's OCT device. If you now give them another company's OCT device uh, output, it, it, may, it may not be able to actually analyze it. Uh, how do you see us working in the future to eliminate this problem besides just training everybody? Well, Peter, that's another another area of very, very, very active research in the artificial intelligence community, and it's not it's not really a solved problem yet. So um, the fact is, I mean, I mean, you've said it may not work, but actually, I would even be a little bit stronger and say if you've trained it on on OCT images from one vendor and you use it in another vendor, it probably won't work. Or at least, at least some tweaking of the algorithm is going to be required for the other uh, other vendor. Even if to a human expert, the scans look pr look pretty similar. Now, um, there are ways that we, um, you know, uh, researchers have begun to address that. And um, if I can mention some of my own work, um, uh, where uh, Moorfields Eye Hospital, where I'm a consultant, was working with the artificial intelligence company DeepMind. Uh, we reported in, in Nature Medicine in 2018 an artificial intelligence system that actually attempted to address that issue. And the way we did it was that we actually had two neural networks in series. So we had a segmentation network, which would feed into a classification network. So what I mean by that is the segmentation network would be um, 
used to kind of delineate any of the pathology on the OCT volume, like intraretinal fluid or subretinal fluid or, or other things like that. And then that segmentation is then fed into a classification network, which would be used to make a diagnosis or a triage decision uh, and you know some sort of output like that. Now, we did that for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was because we thought all of that quantitative data would be would be super useful. But actually, another reason was because we we wanted it it it, it could mean that our system could easily transfer between different uh, image imaging vendors. And so, actually, what we showed in that paper is that we had trained mainly on Topcon OCTs, and then when we used it. Uh, when we took the system and then used it on a Heidelberg OCT without changing anything, it didn't work at all. But then because we had two neural networks, what we could do is we could retrain the segmentation network with a relatively small amount of data. Then it would effectively learn how the different tissues look on the, on the, the new imaging system. And then we could keep the old classification network and, and actually the results were very good. So the upshot then is we don't need to, you don't, you know, if you move to a different device, you don't need to wait until you've accumulated a million scans before you can actually retrain your neural network. Very interesting. James, for our anterior segment colleagues, are there any uses of artificial intelligence that are being looked at for the front of the eye currently? So the front of the eye, I see it as a bigger challenge generally because the quality of our imaging is, um, so much more variable. Um, take slit lamp imaging, for example, it varies enormously on the illumination you can put on the eye, the angles. Um, so that there is a real challenge around that. And people have also tried to take sort of basic, you know, history and symptom data, for example, from, from clinical data sets. But unfortunately, we've never been that good at standardizing what we do. Um, you know, sometimes when people don't see something, they report it. Sometimes because they haven't seen it, they don't report it. Um, the, the computers can't cope with that kind of variability. And also just our ability to um, type a medication without uh, a spelling difference, um, for example, can really uh, affect a system's ability to crunch that data. Are you saying the spelling is worse for anterior segment specialists than, than posterior segment specialists, uh, James? No, but but combined with the lack of standardized imaging, then there's very little data to go on. And I, and I think that's sort of the big challenge with, with anterior eye. So certainly people are, are very interested, for example, um, uh, lumps and bumps on the adnexia. Are there better ways of, of understanding those and whether they are um, uh, cancerous, for example, or not? But but there are huge challenges to doing that in a standardized way. So um, I guess a lot of the work is is uh, at an earlier stage than retinal, just trying to get instrumentation that takes a bit more uh, of a standardized image um, with the caveats that we've already talked about that one imaging system is going to be different to another. So we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the concerns and difficulties with artificial intelligence. Let's flip the script and now look at some of the potential advantages and benefits uh, as ophthalmologists that artificial intelligence could bring us. Uh, let's start first with Pierce in the back of the eye, and then we'll do James for the front. Thanks, Peter. I think you could imagine it, you could imagine breaking it into a number of different categories. So you could think of it in terms of, if we're, if we're focusing mainly on retinal imaging, uh, we could say, well, can we use it in screening? 
And certainly the first two FDA approved uh, autonomous AI systems are for diabetic retinopathy screening. And so, of course, that is something that um, could uh, be very helpful for, um, for ophthalmologists and optometrists and, and indeed patients with diabetes. So you've got a clear screening use case. The work that I've been involved with has been more around a triage use case or a prioritization use case. And so this is the idea that, um, you know, if we have patients with uh, sudden onset visual symptoms, that they go to their, you know, community optometrist yeah, here in the UK, or they go to an emergency department, they have an OCT scan done, and the, the AI system can immediately just run on the macular OCT and say, look, this person has very likely got wet AMD. They need to see a retina specialist within days, um, something like that. So I think there's, that's the screening, that's the triage. I think one of the other big methods, which we've already touched on a little bit, is around better monitoring of, um, of disease, of retinal disease, particularly on, in patients undergoing anti-VEGF uh, therapies. And so, uh, as we've talked about, OCT has the, or AI with OCT has the potential to allow much better automated, objective, quantitative measurement of things like intraretinal fluid, subretinal fluid. And the hope for that is that we can somehow um, further optimize the treatment of our patients uh, when giving them these injections. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and the also the other area, for instance, that there's FDA approved diabetic retinopathy grading uh, artificial intelligence software programs that, you know, hopefully we can use these to have maybe endocrinologists or internists uh, take color photographs that they can then have automatically graded um, to have these patients seek ophthalmic care sooner um, because we have a diabetic uh, epidemic going on. And so being able to get as many patients as possible in for treatment really takes a lot of the burden off us ophthalmologists. James, what about the anterior segment colleagues? How, how do you think they're going to be using artificial intelligence in the future? So one of the, the first areas that people are looking at are those areas that we can take more standardized images. So these are things like myobomian gland imaging, um, where there is uh, rich data from, from images. Um, uh, lumps and bumps in the course of the anterior eye is another one with potentially serious complications. Uh, in terms of the really serious complications for eyes, things like microbial keratitis and endophthalmitis, and those are, are quite challenging because, again, it's about the quality and, and the exact form um, of those images. Again, a, another easy target is things like conjunctival hyperemia and palpebral hyperemia, what we can learn from that in terms of toxicity reactions and, and allergy. Um, and of course, you know, one of the main benefits from things like artificial intelligence, we're training it against experts. So where it really comes into the fore is for new practitioners and to help and, and guide them. And likewise, to inform our patients of, of things like likelihoods. It's that prediction um, for the future. You know, who's going to have that contact lens complication because we can image their eye beforehand and the algorithm can have a look at that against known cases um, where they've gone on to develop complications so practitioners can better advise patients about the, the uh, possible signs but also potentially um, optimize their management choices um, for refractive correction to minimize those risks. Can I jump in there as well James because I really love the idea that you said there about the education element. 
I think that that could turn out to be one of the single most powerful use cases for AI in ophthalmology, because, um, you know, I, I kind of think of the analogy of like chess computers and, and the idea now that if you're learning to play chess, you, you, you train with the chess computer. And the fact that that has led to there to be, uh, you know, a much wider geographical distribution of chess playing talent. And, you know, people are becoming grandmasters at a much younger age than before. So I imagine a world um, in the future where, um, you know, if, if you have a resident in ophthalmology or someone training in optometry, they essentially um, have large data sets of retinal OCT scans. They might have thousands of, of scans. They have an AI system that allows them to, that gives a real-time feedback when they make, uh, when, they, when they train on these data sets and they have some sort of teaching algorithm that somehow um, optimizes the way the data is presented to them when they're training. So in other words, the, the algorithm quickly learns actually if this person has become good, it has become proficient with diabetic macular edema and stops showing those cases and then says, okay, he's, he or she is not so good in this area and starts showing increasingly challenging cases in that area. And I, I kind of feel that like if I, if it took me 10 years to become as good as I am at looking at, at interpreting OCTs, I, I kind of feel that could be done in 10 months if you had like, um, you know, a smart resident and the right data sets and the right computer programs to train that resident. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and there's some, some fantastic examples of how um, AI can generate uh, realistic images of faces. Um, and you can imagine that, again, it could uh, understand what a particular tumour looks like and, and the physiological variation in that to generate new images. Um, and again, that's fantastic for education. This is not something that someone can look up on a computer because it, it doesn't exist, but actually it is a realistic perception of, of what that tumour might look like for people then to practice their diagnostic skills on. Um, so yeah, it has a, a huge potential role in, in education for the future. Um, and likewise, if we can um, accelerate that learning curve, then there will be less mistakes made on patients. So this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. You know, I think one of the interesting things here is, is when artificial intelligence first started in medicine, it was, it was largely, for instance, in radiology, and, and many radiologists were concerned that, that computers were going to basically take their jobs away. And in fact, not the exact opposite has occurred, which is they use the artificial intelligence to make better decisions, better diagnosis, faster decisions, and hopefully deliver better care for our patients. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this discussion. I would really like to thank Dr. Keene and Professor Wolfson for an incredibly interesting discussion, and I wish everyone well. Mm -hmm.